you know, football started last week, a couple weeks ago, and I know some of my football fan friends out there are thinking, okay, I'm going to come and put my time in a church because i got a whole full slate of football games to get to. I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that we only have one verse to get through today. The bad news is my team played on Thursday, so we're going deep into the Word today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, can you guys do me a favor? Can you give it up for our amazing worship team one more time? Awesome. Thanks so much. And uh, open your Bible, turn on your Bible. We're going to be in the book of Ruth this morning. And while you're flipping there, is anybody else excited about all of the amazing things that are coming up in the life of our church? Amen. Regroup starts tomorrow night, this week. Regroups, if you haven't signed up, yeah. If you haven't signed up yet, make sure that you plug in this week. Next week, we're having baptisms and barbecue party. Thank you, Esther. Is it not amazing? I'm so excited. I'm usually like this guy. But it's baptisms, and I've got a big smile on my face. Baptisms and barbecue next week. We have Pastor Richard. Has anybody been blessed by Pastor Richard's ministry here? Yeah, give it up. He, in two weeks, is going to be starting a soul-to-soul care class. So if you have a desire to, to be able to minister to people, if you are going through an experience in your life and, and you're just kind of hoping that God will build, rebuild you and put you back together, make sure that you sign up for Pastor Richard's class. There is an amazing, some amazing opportunities coming up. Growth Track will be kicking off again in two weeks. So wherever you're at, join with us, plug in, get connected, and uh, let us help you take your next steps. Is that okay? All right, so before we jump in the Word, let's just pray one more time, and then we'll dive right in. We're going to be in Ruth 1, but let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to pause here, to come before your Word. And Lord, we just invite your Spirit to teach us. Lord, we don't come seeking information this morning, but we come seeking transformation. So we ask that your Spirit would be alive and working here today. And that you would transform us. Lord, we thank you for all of the other amazing churches in our, in our city, in our state. We think about uh, our relevant church campuses in Michigan. Lord, we ask that you would pour out a blessing on all of the churches that are preaching your gospel. And that here in Riverside, in our state, around the world, you would draw hearts to you. And let us all know that Jesus is relevant. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in Ruth 1. And have you ever found yourself in a situation where you knew you should not be? Have you ever gotten to that place where you're just thinking you can't focus on anything other than the fact, I know I shouldn't be here right now? When I was 14 years old, my brother got me a job at this Italian restaurant that he was working at called the Village Cafe. And I spent 12 miserable years of my life working at this restaurant. But every year there would be this huge trade show in Boston And the owner of the restaurant would get his management team together, and they would go to Boston for this food show. And every year they would come back, and the stories that I would hear about what happened after the food show were legendary. See, they would always stop at this little restaurant in North Boston, this little Italian spot. They'd have dinner, and then they would make their way up Route 1, and they'd stop at this seedy little nightclub. And so they would come back on Tuesday, and all of the guys would be lined up in the kitchen just waiting to hear the stories about all of the shenanigans that happened at this nightclub. And I thought, man, I I grew up in a really conservative, fundamentalist Christian home. I thought, how 
How do you live like that? This is the kind of, they're like apocalyptic stories. You know, the kind of thing you hear and you think, yeah, this is why Jesus needs to come back. Right? So fast forward a few years, and, and they invited me to take a management position that was open, and everything was great until one day the, the owner calls me into his office and says, hey, next Monday we're going to the Cisco show, so make sure you don't make any plans. Immediately, my stomach came up to here because I knew exactly what this meant. It meant that I was going to go to Boston, I was going to go to this food show, and then we're going to have dinner at this amazing little Italian spot, and then I was going to have to make a choice. Am I going to go into this seedy nightclub with them, or am I going to sit out in the car for four hours while they play? And it's all I could think about for like the, the months and the weeks leading up to this food show. What am I going to do? See, see, again, like, I grew up in a home that said you don't go to places like that, which makes those places all the more appealing, right? Because we always want the thing that we can't have, right? And, and then I'm thinking, but it doesn't match my lifestyle. It, it's, I'm a seminary student. I, I'm a leader in the church that I attend. I've given my life to Christ. This is not the kind of place that I need to go. And then on the other hand, I thought, but I really want to see what happens in this place, so we, we pack the car, we drive to Boston, and we're walking around this food show, and there's all of these amazing new food products. And I'm sampling them. I'm not enjoying them because my anxiety level is running so high because I think, what am I going to do when we pull into the parking lot of that nightclub? And, and I go and look at these other products, and the guys explain, like, this is going to cut your prep time in half. And I'm like, yeah, but what am I going to do at 8 o'clock tonight? You don't understand. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessing over what am I going to do? What choice am I going to make? And so we leave the food show. We pull into this little Italian restaurant, downtown Boston, North End. It's this little place that has like six seats. It's the most amazing meal I've ever had in my life. And I thought, this is how the guy on death row feels when they ask him, what do you want your last meal to be? I swear, as soon as the guy paid the check and we stood up, I heard somebody go, dead man walking. I was so filled with panic. We drive a little up Route 1. We pull into the spot, and I'm just like, I have no idea what I'm going to do right now. So we all get out of the car. I walk inside. I go up to the bar. I ask for a Coke because everybody wants to be that guy. Yeah, I'll have a Coke. Maybe we could spice it up with a few ice cubes. So he gives me my Coke. I go and hide in the corner, and for the next few hours, I'm nursing my Coke, thinking, what am I doing here? And so it just seemed like days that we're sitting in this place. And finally, the guys come, and they say, all right, we're going to go. So silently, I walk out to the car. Silently, I climb into my place in the back seat. And silently, I sit for the next two hours, just beating myself up. See, the thing was, is that I had been brought to Moab, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the, the sounds and the smells and the things because I knew that everything that I was seeing and experiencing and living was antithetical to the calling that God had placed on my life. I realized that I had allowed these people to have a, a, a more influential voice in my life than the Holy Spirit who was saying, Scott, don't go in there. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that these are the places that God has called us to visit. These are the places that Jesus boldly went in, making friends and proclaiming the gospel. But at that point, all I saw was this is everything that God has called me and told me not to be. 
And I beat myself up for it. I beat myself up because I allowed myself to willingly step into a place where God had told me not to go. It's the place not of God's rest. It's not the place of God's promise. It's not what God wants for my life. And this is exactly where we find Ruth at the beginning of Ruth chapter 1. Last week, Pastor Jonathan started and he did the first five verses. Today, we're going to deal with Ruth 1.6. And before we get there, I just want to set it up, frame the context by reading the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given him food. The first point this morning is that on the road to God, stop looking in the rear view. On the road to God, stop looking in the rear view. See, here's the thing. This is, I submit to you, for the first time in recorded history, somebody doing the walk of shame. And this is not the kind of thing where you're at Starbucks at 7 in the morning and you see one of your friends stumble in and you think, you, you live on the other side of town, what are you doing here at 7 in the morning? And why are you wearing the same clothes that I saw you in last night at Starbucks? This is not the same kind of walk of shame. See, here's the deal. In the ancient days, they trafficked and they had their currency in honor and shame, right? So, so to sit with the elders at the city gate, you've arrived. You've, you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's. You're a man of integrity, a woman of, of uh, righteousness. And you're sitting there. You have received honor to stumble home with two foreign women, and both your husband and both of your children have passed away, this is not a place of honor. And I guarantee that, that Naomi is thinking, what am I going to do when I get home? Because I know as soon as I cross the border into Bethlehem, all of my friends, all of the people that knew me 10 years ago, they're all going to start whispering. They're all going to start whispering about, oh yeah, there's Naomi. I remember she's the one who broke her faith and went to Moab because she didn't trust that God was going to provide for us. Oh yeah, here's Naomi. What horrible thing happened in Moab that God would visit her with such judgment that he would take away both her husband and her two sons and leave her with these two foreign women in tow? What were they blasting on her wall? My, my one-year-old is at a point in her life when she doesn't like something, she'll look at you and go, no, no, no. And I can only imagine this, this is exactly what that Naomi has found. 
when she returns to Bethlehem. This is her walk of shame. But here's the thing. The the story starts in verse 6. The way that the original language is structured, then she returned, is emphatic. That this is where the story begins. All of the things that happen in verses 1 through 5. How she abandoned her faith in God. That she refused to trust that God would provide for her and her family. That they went to a place that God told them to stay away from. That, That her husband died. That her sons died. All of that is in the background. It's background noise. Then she returned to the place of blessing. Then she came back to God. This is where the story begins. What's the implication for you and I? Where does your story begin? Because so often we take the background noise. We take all of the seedy night spots that we've been into. We take all of the stories of all of the people that we've spent time with. All of the things that we've done. We take all of this garbage and we make that the main story of our life. And God says, that's not your story. That's not where your story begins. Then you returned. Then I called you to me. Then I had relationship with you. Then I brought you into covenant with me. That is where your story begins. So what are you listening to today? What are the things that, that are, people are whispering into your, the people in your present, what are they telling you about your past? You go to church now? You're a pastor now? You go to small group? You do life with other believers? What happened to you? I remember back in the day when we were boys. And we were partying. And you were chasing skirts. I remember that you, what happened to you? And what happens is that when we make that our main story, we start allowing the weight of the stain of our past to block us from having fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers. What are people posting about you on your wall, on your Facebook wall? What are they saying to your face? That you're not good enough. I know where you've been. I saw you break faith with God and I saw you lose your hope. That he wouldn't trust you. That he wouldn't provide for you. You stopped trusting God. And you went to Moab. And now you're back? Stop looking in the rear view. Your life starts when God called you to return home. Amen? The second point this morning is that it's time to get off the bench and get into the game. My aunt and my mom instilled a love for baseball in me when I was just a little kid. Stories of taking us down to Fenway Park, watching the Red Sox. My all-time favorite player, Carlton Fisk, he was the catcher for the Red Sox. It instilled a love for baseball in me. And so when I was a a little five-year-old kindergarten student in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, I said, hey, I want to try out for t-ball. And I say try out, I didn't realize that nobody gets cut. So here I am, I'm five years old. I'm going to be completely honest. I was a chubby little kid. I didn't run very well. I was afraid of the ball when it was hit to me. And so I quickly found out something about baseball. Is that there's eight positions on the field that are saved for the people who are good at baseball. There's the jocks, there's the you know, naturally gifted kids, there's the coach's son. All of these people fill the eight spots on the field. The rest of us who suck, we get to sit on the bench. 
And I hope my mom's not watching, because if she heard me say suck in church, she'd be really disappointed. So there's eight positions on the field. There's a, a spot on the bench for those of us that suck. And then there's right field, which is sort of a gateway from those of us who suck to actually get in the game. And, and he, the right field is for the, the kid who sucks a little less than the rest of us. Right? So every, every game I'd come, I'd show up to the field expecting. And, and every game, he'd announce the order, the roster. And every game, my name was never mentioned. So every game, I, I, we'd come, we'd have warm-ups, we'd have batting practice. And I would go and take my, my spot. I wouldn't even sit on the bench. I'd go back to the fence, and I'd be talking to my friends who were on the other side of the fence. <laughs> right? So, so one, one day, we're getting ready to start the game, and I hear, Aspling! And I look up, and I'm like, what's up, coach? I'm going to stand over here and put out the vibe. And he's like, right field. And I seriously did this. <laughs> Ask Blake. So I'm like, okay, so if you've ever been to a Little League game and you know there's always that one little kid that's like just running around, doesn't know where he is, doesn't really care, he's just having a good time, gets to back to the bench, he like flings his glove up in the air, and then he's like having a little party with himself. That was me. So he tells me to go to right field, and I'm like, okay, where's my glove? Where's my glove? Where's my hat? I'm like looking everywhere for my stuff. Finally, I get it, and I proudly jog out to left field. And so the left fielder, this jock kid, like comes up, taps me on the shoulder, and I look back, I'm like, what's up? And he just points and goes, right field. I was like, oh, right field. So I jog over to right field. And, And it was, I was so excited to be in the game, and my excitement wore off by about three innings in. Because here's the thing about T-ball, is that nobody hits it to the outfield, right? And even when they do, they never hit it to right field. So I'm out in right field, I'm like daydreaming about the day that I'm going to be the starting right fielder for the Boston Red Sox, the first place Boston Red Sox. (laughs) This is why my wife tells me don't tell jokes at church. So I'm out in right field, I'm just imagining the day, and I'm daydreaming, and and one day somebody hits the ball out to right field, and I'm just like, now I don't know what to do. And I know it was a mistake, because the kid's like running down the first place, like giggling to himself, like, oh my gosh, I totally didn't mean to do that. So I'm out there, and like three games in, I'm like, man, this is miserable. I want to be where the action is. I want to be in a place where I can affect the outcome of the game. I don't want to just stand out here and and twiddle my thumbs and pick the dandelions. I want to be involved. I want to make a difference. I want to to make my coach proud. And and so one day, I'm sitting on the bench, and I overhear the coaches talking about how we need to make a change at catcher. And my ears lit up. I'm like, this is my opportunity. Carlton Fisk revisited. So I go, coach, I heard you talking. I'd like to try. And they're like, well, you're certainly wide enough to block the plate. We'll give you a chance. And it was amazing. I was, I was making impact in the game. I was tagging out runners as they came home. I was scooping up the little, the little ground balls that they were hit and throwing people out at first. I was living my field of dreams dream. I was making a difference in the game. I was impacting it. And I realized this morning as I was reading the story that this is exactly the kind of Christian life that God wants each of us to experience. He doesn't want us sitting on the bench. He doesn't want us watching thinking, if only I could get in the game, I could make an impact. See, here's the thing, right? We read in Ruth 1.6. 
that she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited and given food. Right, last week, Pastor Jonathan gave us a little spoiler alert about what happens at the end of Ruth. Here's Ruth. She's a foreign woman. She, she comes into Naomi's circle because she married into it and then lost her husband. And here they are working in the field and, and fast forward to the end and now she is part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. How amazing would it be if this story ends? Then she arose with her daughters-in-law because she had heard that the Lord was doing something. End of story. The end. Game over. What happens if she's content to hear what God is up to? Hear about all of the amazing blessings that God is pouring out on his people. And she said, well, it's good for them. I'm just going to stay here. Then Ruth wouldn't have given birth to Obed, and Obed to David, and then 21 generations later had given birth to Jesus Christ. God wants you to get off the bench and get into the game. You know, here's the the reality is this, is that when, when you and I talk about the way we experience our Christianity, when we talk about how much we're involved, what we're doing, we don't sit on the bench because we're not good enough. We sit on the bench either because we've believed all of the whispers in our ear that tell us, Scott, you're not good enough, or we're just content to sit by and watch. And here's the reality, is that this is going to be part of your story from the moment you get saved to the moment you get called to heaven. At every level along the way, there's going to be a question. Are you content where you're at? Or are you going to take it to the next level? It starts the minute that you feel God tugging your heart. And you're going to hear all of the people saying, why do you want to give your life to Christ? Why do you want to do that? How how are we going to believe that God is doing anything in your life? Because I've seen where you've lived. I've seen where you've been. And I know, I know that God wants nothing to do with you. And are we going to listen to that crap? Or are we going to stand up in faith? And then we're going to come to church and we're going to start hearing all of these amazing stories about people who have who've taken the next step and started doing life together. And all of the amazing blessings that come from living in relationship with other believers. And, and about how my story, my life was transformed because I realized somebody else has walked through the same garbage that I've been through. There's somebody else that sits at the end of the pew that's been to Moab, the same place that I was at. There's somebody else who, who lived through having an adulterous spouse and went through divorce just like I did. There's somebody who's fought drug addiction just like I did. There's somebody who is feeling alone just like I am. But the thing about it is, you need to stop being content listening to their stories and start writing the next chapter of your own. Get off the bench and get into the game. How many stories are you going to hear about all of the amazing things that happened when I trusted God and joined the tithe challenge? How many times are you, are you going to say, you know what, I'm tired of living in this place where, you know what, God had a famine, sent a famine, so I packed up my bags and I went to Moab. It's time to, to, to stop listening to someone else's stories about all of the amazing blessings, all of the amazing things that God is doing in their life because they believe that God's going to visit again and bring bread, that he's going to bring food back to the house of bread. It's time to get off the bench and get into the game.
Whew, is it hot in here? Is it me? Thank you. That's true. Get off the bench, get into the game. The third point this morning is that, now my mind went blank. Good things happen when the Lord visits. I'm not going to lie to you, when I first read this passage, I was sort of confused. Because I feel like there's something about this statement that plays into all of the things that people tell me that, why they tell me that my faith is a waste of time. You know, Scott, where's God when the bad things happen? You know, the way that the story is written, it almost begs for us to ask that question, where is God in all of this? There's a famine in the land, and, and these people leave there to go to Moab because they don't believe that God is going to show up. This guy, Elimelech, his name means God is my king. And by packing up his family and going to Moab, he's demonstrating that that's not true. Where is God in all of this? God visited his people. What does that even mean? And here's the thing about it is that we need to frame this in terms of Israel's, not only their history, but their theology and their understanding of how God works as well. So first of all, Israel believed that or Israel was called into covenant relationship with God. So it meant that when they were obedient to God, when they were loyal to God, when they were faithful, when they were upholding their end of the covenant, God was faithful to them. And when they strayed away, when they started worshiping other gods, when they weren't taking care of their own people, the widows and other people who needed to step up and take care of them, God would bring judgment. At the very beginning of the book of Ruth, we hear that this story is set in the days when the judges ruled. And Pastor Jonathan made it clear last week that this time is a tumultuous time when people would be living in close relationship with God and he would bless them. And then they would veer away and God would raise up a nation around them and he would send them in and they would shake things up a little bit because he wanted to get their attention. They would cry out and he would raise up a deliverer and set things right. So, the story takes place in this time of the judges. What can we assume about how Israel was living if there is a time of famine? Probably not upholding their end of the covenant, right? So historically speaking, this is a time where they were being disobedient to God. And theologically, we understand that, that God is saying that when you don't uphold your end of the covenant, I will bring judgment to you. So when it says that God visited, it doesn't mean that he wasn't present, that he hadn't been, you know, watching what was going on, active in, his, in their lives. The, the language suggests that it's not like, oh, you know, I haven't seen my friend Bobby for six years. I'm going to go pay him a, a visit. It, it's not the kind of thing where I haven't been home to see my mom for a couple years, so I'm going to buy tickets next summer and I'm going to go visit her. It's not this idea that you don't, you don't think about someone, you don't connect with someone, you don't talk to anybody for years and years and years, and then we'll finally go and pay them a visit. It's that he had done something to make an impact and change the way that they were presently experiencing life. What it's saying is that God remembered the promises that he had made to his children, that God responded to their obedience, and now he's coming back and he's saying, okay, You've repented, you've returned, and now I'm going to unpack the blessings again for you. 
It's, a, it's not so much that God wasn't present, that they didn't believe that God was up to anything. This statement is to indicate to us that God was faithfully responding to his people's covenant faithfulness to him. So what does that mean for you and I? Because we don't live in the same divine economy, right? It, it, it doesn't mean that, okay, if you want to earn the blessings of God, then you need, you know, follow the Ten Commandments. Make sure that you write a 10% check and put it in the offering basket. And then God will visit you with favor. It's just a reminder to each of us that even when things get hard, even when I feel like I've gone to Moab, that that doesn't define my story anymore. It doesn't mean that I am the sum total of all of my choices, all of my experiences. It means that when God calls me to come back into relationship with him, he's going to be faithful to me every step of the way. It's going to hit the fan, but guess what? God's going to visit because God is faithful. I'm going to make a choice that's going to derail everything that I've built. But guess what? God hasn't gone away because God is faithful. See, all of this story, all of the things that happened to Ruth and Naomi, all of the choices that they make is predicated on one simple fact. You don't have to do it. God is faithful. In the moments when I'm sitting in the back of this CD nightclub, I'm ashamed because I'm there, not because of the choice I make, but because I know that God is faithful and I'm not being faithful. In the moments where I feel like, what am I going to do? How am I going to sell out so that I can put bread on the table? I don't have to because God is faithful. It won't always be easy, but God never changes. It won't always be, you know, pie in the sky. Hey, how you living now? But the, the reality is all of your experience with God is predicated on one simple fact. That God is a good and gracious and faithful God. That he will never abandon you even when it feels like he has. Because God is faithful and he will visit his people and bring them food. Amen. Yeah, you can clap in church. It's all right. Our last point this morning is that Moab is a place of oppression, but God is the source of freedom. You know, last week, Pastor Jonathan talked about Moab and and who they were and how they came into existence. And he said that Moab was the, the fruit of an incestuous relationship that Noah had with one of his daughters-in-law. And he, he framed it, he framed Moab as a place that we go when our faith can no longer sustain us. It's a place that we go when, when we don't believe that, that God's going to come through. It's a place that we go when we feel like we need to take things and matters into our own hands. It's a place that we go because we can't trust God anymore. But I'd like to suggest to you that Moab is often a place that's so much more than that. It's a place of bondage. It's a place that keeps us in chains and in shackles. It's a place that that prevents us from experiencing the life of freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. Again, to go back to the beginning of Ruth, it says that this story takes place in the time of Judges. Listen to Judges 3, 12 to 14. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. See, not only is Moab a place where we go and we, we want to take matters into our own hands when our faith won't sustain us, but it's the place that is uh, oppressing us. It's a place that doesn't want us to experience joy in life in Jesus. It's a place of bondage. It's a place that we serve. And how often is it that we get to a place in our life when we're standing at the cliff, the precipice, we don't know what's going to happen. For Naomi and Elimelech, it was a famine in the land. What is it for you that's bringing you to this place and you need to make a choice? What is it that's, that's not allowing you to trust God? What are the voices in your ear that's saying God won't come through? Because not only is Moab a place that we run to when we can't trust God anymore, it's a place that wants to keep you in shackles. It's a place that wants to rob your devotion of God, your desire to serve God, and it wants to have you serve something else that is no God at all. It wants you to give your devotion and your service to nothing that is ever going to be able to save you. It's going to bring you to the place where you're going to give your love and your devotion to things that are going to rob you of joy, rob you of freedom, rob you of experiencing life in God, rob you of experiencing this amazing life in the company of other believers and having fellowship. It's a place that's going to destroy you. It's a place that's going to demand payments that you can't afford. It's a place that's going to keep you locked up. It's going to be a place that, that God will, won't be able to use you anymore. See, here's the thing, right? Is that we talk about Moab. We've, we've all been there. We've all found ourselves in, in places that I know I shouldn't be here right now. We've all dealt with the walk of shame and, and thought to ourselves, how is God ever going to use me? How is God ever going to redeem my story? But here's the thing. Guess who's living in Moab right now? Millions of people in our world, hundreds of thousands of people in our city, hundreds of people on your block right now, this moment, are living in Moab. And guess what they're thinking? My life is over. I can never walk back to God. There's nobody that's ever been in the same place as mine. And they're literally dying to hear you tell your story. They're literally dying in bondage, locked up, away from God, just wondering, where is God in all of this? Where is God in my life? I never signed up for this. It's not supposed to be this hard. I was never supposed to be so broke. I was never supposed to be so broken. And guess what you have? You have the key. Your story, God's redemption in your life, is the key that he wants to use to bring someone else who's in bondage, someone else who's in captivity, someone else who's broken and lost. He wants to use your story to say, you know what? That's not what life is all about. Life starts when you start to return to me. Life starts when you experience my grace. Life starts when you experience my redemption. And your story is the key to unlock it. So do me a favor. Stop listening to the whispers in your ear. Stop listening and looking in the rear view. Stop allowing yourself to be disqualified because the dirt of Moab is still on your garments. It doesn't matter because life began when you made that first step and God called you home. 
get off the bench and get into the game. There's so many amazing opportunities that are coming up. Regroup, growth track, baptisms and barbecues. If you haven't jumped in yet and you're tired of hearing everybody else tell their story and you want to write the next chapter of your own, get plugged in. Get plugged in. Because God wants to visit. God wants to bring you back to the, from the, the place of faithlessness and visit and bring food. Join with me as we pray. Father God, we're thankful. We're thankful that no matter how many times we've found ourselves in a spot that we shouldn't be in, that no matter how many times we've walked away from you because our faith won't sustain us, no matter how many times we've found ourselves in famine, that those experiences don't define who we are. But it's your goodness, it's your grace, it's your redemption, it's your restoration, it's the way that you called us back out of death and into life. Lord, this morning, we're your children, heirs with Christ. And today, Lord, we own it. Today, Lord, we find our identity in you. Today, Lord, we're going to invite you to use our stories even as you help us write our own. This morning, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.